Kia ora and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Coach's Corner Podcast. This is our 50th episode. And when we started recording, 50 episodes wasn't even something that I'd imagine um, we'd ever, ever do. I thought maybe it was going to stop at maybe 20 or something like that, whatever. But we got to 50 and today we're going to be talking about some of our, I guess, our memorable uh conversations that we've had on this podcast and the best person to have that conversation with is our producer and he's also our communications executive josh bamber welcome to the podcast finally thank you Eric. yeah it's nice to get a little chance to, to say my my two cents <laughs> and uh give some feedback as well yeah well you've heard you've heard well you've heard every single conversation that we've had as well as the intakes and the outtakes so but for those that don't know Josh and the amazing work that he does, he's a colleague of mine here at Canterbury Rugby. He's, as I mentioned, he's our communications executive. Um, and when he's not behind the desk editing these podcasts or behind a camera taking photos and creating content, you can find him in the middle of a pitch refereeing. And this year was a huge year for Josh. He ended up debuting as a first-class referee in our Heartland competition. So congratulations on that, mate. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was pretty um, exciting to have the opportunity to, to go over to the coast um, for my first game and referee over there. It's a pretty unique place and um, yeah, cool competition to be a part of. Yeah. Like you're looking at the teams and the colours and they're all synonymous with provincial rugby and so it was cool to be out there in the middle doing it as well. And what a game to debut because there was a little bit of like... It became one of those like to the wire games, didn't it? Yeah, I've been getting a bit of stick amongst the refereeing community because my first game, um, which was West Coast Mid Canterbury, went to Golden Point. Um, so a good referee always finds a result. And the second game went right to the wire as well. I had North Otago and Thames Valley and North Otago won on the on the buzzer. So certainly like the drama and yeah. uh, and it's cool to be a part. You know, the, as they say, refereeing the best seat is in the middle. So. Right there for all those big moments, which is pretty exciting. Now that is real exciting, and I guess can you just we'll we'll talk around probably some some of the episode stuff and do an end of year review. But what got you into refereeing? Like, why did you why did you want to pick up a whistle? And um, I, the exact reason kind of goes past me now. I've been refereeing twelve years, so um, I started when I was thirteen. Um, one of Dad's friends was Brent Murray, who was an NPC referee, um, and kind of, you know, through conversations with him, got an interest in it and had the opportunity to do the You Make the Call course, which um, all the provincial unions runs for school students to have the opportunity to uh, give refereeing a go and, and see if it's something for them. And you get a few NCA credits and, and the like as well. And at the time, I was doing the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Yeah. So you got to do a skill, a, a service, and a sport. And, being sports focused, the skill I coach water polo in my sport. I played a ton of sport, so I thought, why not make the skill a sport focused thing too? And then picked up refereeing, and yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, ended up giving I was a footballer, and ended up giving up football to pursue refereeing full time, or as my Saturday sport. And and finally now, kind of having opportunities to to progress. Yeah, so so obviously been doing it for a wee while. What has been kind of your biggest lessons that you've learned or some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the way of becoming a referee? Oh, there's a lot of life skills I've got out of it. Like I've grown up, obviously, being 13 when you start, you're very immature and, and a very different person. And from the opportunity to kind of, you know, 
you make those decision making, um, being in those decision making kind of moments and learning to deal with conflict and, and the likes of that. Like they're all skills that I definitely didn't have when I started refereeing and now would feel really comfortable going into new environments and, and dealing with new people. Um, it's such a unique environment where you are kind of the one person in the middle, right? Especially in a rugby game where a lot of the time the focus will turn to you rightly or wrongly and you've got to kind of cope with that pressure and having the opportunity to to push yourself both mentally and physically is is pretty cool. Like it's a very unique space. Like there's not many places that you can go where you are challenged in both those capacities. And yeah, I I love it. Like it's something that I'm always grateful now that I've picked it up and, and kept going with and, as you say, it's starting to open up some really exciting doors. Like, well, as I see, I was a footballer. Yeah. So I'd never be playing first-class rugby in any capacity. So yeah. to be uh, in, out in the middle refereeing, it's pretty special. Yeah, that is. That is really special. And I think where, where my, my mind goes around, like, you're learning all these skills. Like you said, you're learning all these life skills around managing conflict and stuff like that. What is the role? What is your definition of the role of a referee when it comes to a game? And the reason why I asked that, and probably some context to that question, because it sounds super loaded, is around like a lot of our coaches and players feel like it's the referee versus them. Where where do you sit on that? Yeah, it's definitely the opposite, right? Like I've probably quipped a few too many times that I want to go out there and blow my whistle for tries and and kickoffs and that's it. Yeah. Um, You know, we're there to help the game flow and and whatever capacity that requires you know sometimes the games aren't free flowing and and it would feel a bit stop start but it's almost that's part of rugby right it's it's part of the game that we all love there is a lot of different laws and definitions and interpretations but if we can go out there and and walk off and both teams are happy at the end of the day that's kind of our goal and how we get there will depend on what's kind of presented in front of us yeah and that's i think that's an awesome way how you what you highlight there because like we just recently had a coaching course and we had a couple of um your colleagues come in lady and josh popped in and and helped us and our conversation to the coaches were um and this is off the back of a conversation that we had with Lyndon is that the role of a coach and the role of the referee although different for the same reason, like the purpose is the same. Like we want to make sure that, that our players are safe and we want to make sure that the games, the integrity of the game is safe. And so we're actually working together for that same point, but for some reason it's always like, oh, the referee's doing it. They're calling the wrong calls and stuff like that, but maybe potentially the the coaches don't have the law understanding like like our, like our referees have to have the law understanding. But yeah, our coaches sometimes don't have that. So, what would you, what would your advice be to those coaches that feel like they know everything about rugby, but sometimes they're just like, right? Yeah, I think that, like you look at the World Cup recently over the weekend, right? But um, there's always going to be questions about refereeing in those big moments like that. Yeah. You are the centre of of the games, right? And I was a bit disappointed in the fact you got these articles and there are Dupont said this about O'Keefe and. Um, one of the Fijian captains said the same thing, but then you scroll down the article and both coaches spoke really well about you know, the refereeing actually doesn't impact us that much. Yeah. Um, obviously, you go out and you plan for who you're playing as much as who's refereeing, but ultimately, 
the referee isn't going out of his way to impact the game. He wants to just be there and help facilitate it. And yeah. as I said, the way that happens is obviously depending on the players. Um, in a coaching sense, it's almost the same thing where you can't control what the, your players do, whether they knock the ball on or they, you know, the player move wrong or do something in that space. So it's almost just that controllable thing, right? You, yeah. you want to control what you can control. And if you know your law and you can bring sensible questions and, and the stuff to the referee, then you can almost get a lot more out of that than the criticism part, especially yeah. post-game. Well, you highlighted a cool point then, like around, like, at the World Cup. So obviously the the players are saying something and then the coaches are highlighting something else. But also there was another, there was a cool bit of law that nobody ever really uses, but the, the South Africans used it. It was their free kick and they opted for a scrub and then they got a penalty out of their scrum and then they boomed it like 20 odd metres and now they're where if they caught it and kicked it 20 odd metres line out to the French, but they're like, oh no, we'll, we'll, we'll mm. get our scrum and try and get a penalty and get the line out down the, down the field and then we get the ball back. That there to me, that's that's smart coaching working within the laws. But I'd probably question how many coaches actually knew that you have those options to take take a scrum at a free kick or yeah, like rugby is a complicated game, right? There's a lot of laws and amongst things we've got 23 total, and then underneath there there's you know all the sub laws basically. Yeah. Um, and knowing your your game is so important. Like you look at that Italy England game, well, it'd be about ten years ago now. Oh, the no rucks, the no rucks one, and it just completely changed the way everyone thought about that area yeah. of the game. Like, you know, referees are there to facilitate it, but the coaches are there to challenge it. Yeah, and how you challenge it, it depends on your knowledge, right? And having that opportunity to, you know, <laughs> pretty much throw the whole English national team off their game is pretty yeah. cool to see. Obviously now you can't do it because they've changed the laws to fit, but there's always little loopholes here and there and and or at least understandings and you can use them to your advantage. Like South Africa's scrum was, you know, dominant, right? Yeah. You're never really going to take a scrum inside your own 22, but because they were so dominant, they had that option and that ability to do that. Yeah. Well, that, and that's like some of the conversations we've been having, like, are you offside if you're out, if you're not in the field of play? Like, because technically you're not, but like, Potentially, you could like the fact that nobody's really tried it or questioned it. It's just like, well, and then are you actually playing within the like spirit you know, of the game, the spirit of the game type of thing? You're like, well, what are the law- the laws are there so that we can have the spirit of the game so that there is fairness of play. But I think that's what we do as coaches. We become almost like lawyers, right? We're like, well, how can we use this piece of law for our client who's our team for their benefit and you guys are just the judges that are just ruling on what the law law is yeah it's fascinating to see a lot of teams go back to the kind of the wall you know off the quick tap yeah. um either going into a mall situation or using it to for that um, subterfuge kind of part yeah like that's such a what well, was such a big part of the game you know 20 years ago sort of thing and now it's starting to come back in and, and utilize it right because the the laws allow you to have a go. I think it'd be amazing to have been in the room in that Italy pre-game, uh, pre-match or you know, training week. Yeah. Like how many of the players questioned what the coaches were saying or who brought it up or, you know, those sorts of things because it is, was such a bizarre circumstance for all involved, including the ref and whether he was warned to it or not. Yeah. Who knows? But having that knowledge to then apply the law if he wasn't uh, warned to it, 
is pretty you know that's pretty cool that he was able to make those decisions in a high pressure moment and, and Twickenham and yeah and let the game maybe not flow because it obviously got quite clunky with Italy being in their back line but understanding that that's not when you step in and, and get involved whereas the coaches were able to go oh this is what we do and yeah yeah give it a go yeah well that's where like rugby's been around for over 100 years now and we talk around it a lot and I think it was like Smithy's conversation like there's no there's no real new ideas but there becomes new ideas when new laws get introduced or laws get changed because they're like trying to make the game either safer or more of a or the entertainment side of things and you're just like well okay so that's where innovation comes in around like well if this is what the law says then well, we're working within mm. the law where I think that's where some coaches kind of get hung up they'll just like their law knowledge is either from when they were playing or from watching TV and seeing what the referee blows and they're going okay well that's the law but like you said there's 23 laws I don't I wonder how many coaches know that you can be out of bounds or dead in goal and you can still score a try. <laughs> the, the classic one, law exam question, that one. Yeah, yeah. That, and that type of stuff, and there's probably some coaches there It's like, shit, my mind's blown. Or maybe there's coaches out there that are from a different school and they just think, going, what are actually the laws within all the rules? Well, we're the only ones that call them laws, but what are the rules within our games that go, what we can try and stretch so. Awesome. We'll jump into our, we'll jump into it. Let's review. So we've done, we've done 50 podcasts, but this year we've done 32. What's probably been, what have been some of the cool messages or episodes that have like got you thinking around like, geez, what's Ricky doing talking to this person? How is he going to make this relate? But like the messages that you've pulled, pulled out of them yeah there's it's certainly been you know like there's a lot of people in here that you've talked to that are not traditional you we know, we even related to rugby at all right like i think the one for me that stood out was the jt holmes one yeah um i've got an interest in that kind of extreme sports side and and hearing how he can like, it was almost how you that relates to rugby and how that applies even though it's completely different and having that opportunity to kind of yeah, show the importance of what they do in, in their chosen field. And there's a number in here that were in that space as well. What they do in their field relates to us yeah. and, and to coaching and, and rugby. Like it was, yeah, it was pretty fascinating to hear him talk and, you know, a number of these people as well around um, a few of like the higher profile ones yeah. too. Like the message is the same for them as it is for your community coaches and, and the like. Like it doesn't necessarily change, obviously, your knowledge and your skill set gets better with more time and full-time involvement. But, oh, yeah, you can write it right back to the under-13s coach. It relates pretty pretty closely. Yeah, yeah the JP Holmes episode was real cool. Like, what I loved about him, and the reason, like like I said on the podcast, was reading a book around flow um, by Stephen Kotler, and then um, his story popped up around how he managed to get a crew to, like, he assembled this unreal crew of these daredevil type people to jump out of helicopters to fly in the Chicago's like around the buildings and stuff like that but like how do you actually train for that in such a short cap like such a short space of time and hearing some of the practical ideas that he talked about 
like how they're just find like cliff faces that were of similar height or that they could maneuver and then the conversations that they were they were having but i think for me the like a real interesting part of that conversation was his thing around innovation like how did like him going from like being a skier to then deciding i might be, put a wingsuit on and go flying to now i might bring my two favorite things together to do like speeds is it speed skiing or where he's like got the parachute on and now that now he can like traverse over like areas of rock safely and then find another line that he can ski down and you just like well actually what does that look like in our sport like again we go back to that innovation thing like how can we like make things more exciting for our players so that they're like that you become more curious around the game like okay well, what can what can i do to be be a little bit better yeah his his combo was awesome yeah like obviously the life and death aspect doesn't necessarily translate no. directly to rugby but it's that whole high pressure moments and we talk about wanting to get the best out of our teams like yeah yeah like how does he build a squad that he knows in that moment and like a high high pressure yeah will perform the same way that they do in a, in a training environment yeah. um yeah so i found that really fascinating i'm big skier and obviously i'm not doing the, the stuff that he does on, on the ski <laughs> yeah. slopes but seeing that then translate to a, a coaching and a team environment and a rugby sense was, yeah yeah i really enjoyed listening to that one yeah yeah and you mentioned like we had some pretty high caliber coaches on like our traditional coaches like we had robbie on we've had wayne smith was on we had steve hansen mike cron his son dan cron was on like gus and marty were there as well joe medic like for me like talking to like some like a lot of those coaches i look up to all those those people that we talked about i look up to as a coach around like hopefully one day i could you know be coaching on the on the international stage or at, or at a professional level and just hearing how simple they make things like that's been like smithy's known as the professor and you as soon as you think professor you think shit a lot of this stuff's gonna, like got to be really technical but like the fact that he makes he makes everything so simple and kenj talked around how simple he made made everything right like he might have all this all these things up on his wall but you only see like the one percent of that he'll do with the 99 percent of the stuff there yeah i think that going back to basic especially that black men's environment going back to the the basics and why you enjoy playing rugby yeah was that's a big part of wayne smith's ethos right is like having fun and playing the game positively and, and hearing both from the player and from a coach's perspective how that translates especially in an environment where there's a lot of pressure on them right they're at home world cup results hadn't been going their way and so using this mentality that has been successful and implementing it in a new environment was yeah really cool to hear especially from that player's side like are we you know coaches can say one thing but if the players don't buy in then you're not going to get the results and so hearing how he managed to do that both from both sides was yeah. pretty cool yeah and that's kind of like um like even like um Steve Hansen's chat like you, you see him as like this big brash like confrontational man like and everybody's seen the the all or nothing all, well hopefully everybody's seen the all or nothing series that the all blacks did over that lions tour 
and like he was pretty hard nose but yeah at the heart of it like like probably one of the most vulnerable empathetic coaches out of the way the amount that he cares for his players and to try and get the best out of them and he sees that if I can get them in a place where they're happy off the field mate they're going to be the best version of themselves on the field as well and I was like well that doesn't take coaching that just takes time and care for for someone right yeah I mean it, it emphasizes that whole um, culture piece doesn't it yeah like talk about how important culture is and if you can be in an environment where you feel comfortable in and can be your true self you're going to get the best results yeah and hearing from someone that you're right comes across potentially in the media and in previous kind of um what's the word like views of him as this kind of quiet hard nose doesn't really go into that space but then hearing exactly on those the exact opposite and this is how we talk to certain people and and this is how we get the right results it's yeah fascinating yeah. chat who would be the most out of um i know who my one would be well i, I know most of the guests anyway because most of the guests i got on is purely for my own essentially my own professional development because i want to have a yarn to them but being the most surprising guest that you're like oh ricky what are you doing here getting this person on <laughs> <laughs> um oh, to be honest I can't think of any specific ones. There's certainly ones where I like. I, there's a number in here that I don't know the person and don't know their background until you talk to them. Yeah. Um, including JT, like I didn't know of him. Um, but yeah, certainly like a number in here, and I probably can't nail it down to one or two. But there was certainly a few. I was like, oh, what's this got to do with rugby or coaching? And yeah. then you dive into it and there's a whole bigger understanding of actually it's culture or belonging and and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the most, probably the, maybe not the most um, private messages that I've been sent, but I've been sent a couple of messages around like when we got Marcus Deuce Toy on, the, the mathematician, and they're just like, like a couple of people, a couple of coaches were like, for a moment, I thought you'd lost your mind getting a mathematician on, but as, it wasn't until they like started to go a little bit deeper into it, and I just like, holy heck! Like that is like it makes a lot of sense why you almost got a mathematician on. And I think that's probably been the um, and you touched on it earlier, been the cool thing about um, I guess the pods this year is almost like the breadth of knowledge that we've managed to bring on like we've had a mathematician we've had like Gary Klein and John Schmidt who are both like working that cognitive like decision making space um Preston Klein who works with mission critical teams like these Chantal Pratt who's a neuroscientist like talking around like so for me getting her on was was a bit of a fanboy moment as well like reading her book but finding out like the science of like what's actually going on in people's brains and how people actually see that or think differently. Like some people think in images and other people think in words. And it's just like, well, if you didn't know that, how did you, like, how would you actually connect with that person as a, as a player or whatever? And I just thought that was really cool. Well, our recent one with Nick Wilson, right? Like he was saying around language and that Ronan O'Gara 
<laughs> it's certainly quite a hard-nosed piece, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I found that one really fascinating in terms of, like, you don't really think about what you're saying too much. Like, obviously, I work in the communication space, so a lot of what we do is around how can we frame a message to the particular audience that we're talking to. And it's no different in, in that sense, right, with a coach. It's how can you get buy-in from your your team? Yeah. The swearing piece, so I, that was fascinating to me because I've never really thought about why you might swear and who you might swear around. And that Ronan O'Gara piece is so good because it's like, well, here's a, a group of people that he's obviously the leader of, but he uses the swearing in a different language to what he's speaking in, but to emphasise his points, but obviously feels comfortable to do it in that group. Yeah. Um, now in a communication space, you're never going to write a piece with tons of swear words and get by in that way. But it's similar to what we would think is this is the audience we've got to talk to and this is how we're going to talk to them effectively. And and for him, it was speaking in their language but emphasising it through his. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably wasn't actually until that chat with Nick, like you just, I just start picking up now on people's language a little bit more around like not question what they're saying but try and get an understanding of why they're saying those particular words and like you mentioned the swearing stuff watching the amazon prime um documentary around the premiership rugby and lewis ludlam ludlam the captain for northampton saints like every time he starts a sentence around like what they're wanting to do is like fuck this, fuck that, and we're gonna make sure that they feel it. But like like Nick was saying, like they're using it as an almost like a key factor or like an exclamation mark, like the intent to up the intensity of like what we're gonna do, like really highlight, like we're going to absolutely better these men, but instead of that, we're gonna fuck them up. And you're just like, holy, like it becomes a more of a place of care rather than the fact that this person just doesn't have a massive vocab of words at his disposal to use. And I was just like, it almost makes the point stick more. Yeah, I think that having that understanding that it is a, a good thing rather than a, like, that's their fallback. Yeah. Um, it's certainly interesting, especially when you listen to that Ronan O'Gara thing. Like, I listened, I'd seen it before the chat with Nick and gone, oh, yeah, that. That's funny, an Irishman speaking in French and swearing in English. Yeah. But when you dive into it, it's just fascinating to actually be like, well, there's a whole other reason as to why he would use that language and whether or not he's thinking about that, it's not important, but it's actually the comfortable nature of his delivery, right, yeah. that he feels like in this environment, that's how he's going to cut through with that group. And you even think in our Canterbury environments and other environments, like the language around the we and the us and our and, and theirs. And yeah. All that's so fascinating when you think actually there's a bigger, bigger context around why you might use that language. Yeah. And that's a good point because you'd probably say our Canterbury and Crusaders steeped in legacy, history, and culture, like the DNA is so strong around like what what makes us red and black, that type of stuff. And then when you're in the environments and you hear the language, it is a, everything is solidarity. Like it is a lot of like them against us. Everybody wants to be Canterbury, which is like for good or bad reasons, it is what it is. Like it, 
because how successful we've been in the past because of what we what we do like we have to like it's us against everybody everybody wants wants to beat us if not like and i think that there is is awesome like when you hear kind of razor talk about the me we we hear like some of the values that marty talks around like what is our identity and all that type of stuff what is our dna and how are we going to play it's like, it's never just like what are you going to do or what i'm going to do it's always it's always a, it makes all of us and i think yeah that insight from nick is is awesome and i think it flows on really well to some of the stuff that like and probably one of my favorite conversations is with owen eastwood like that sense of belonging stuff and what he talked to bb and i about was was awesome because how do you get people to connect with a place or a new team environment or, or something like that that was a lot of the stuff is around like using the language and talking around what their we think your skill is going to help make us better like when he was talking to, well, you're a footballer, when he was talking about Gareth Southgate, right? And mm. how he'd go to everybody's um, home where it invite them to his house. And they started talking around like how your story now flows into our river. And it's just like, holy heck, that's, that's a real powerful, powerful image. But again, at the heart of it is that those words that anchor back in. Yeah, that was definitely one of my um, favourite ones because hearing obviously is, is a person with a lot of, uh, experience and, and the teams and, and environments he's worked in are, are really unique, right? And all very different as yeah. well. Like, you know, the All Blacks and the England national team are very much the hunted in their sport and for different reasons. Obviously, England um, in the football space are the historical giant that probably haven't delivered to the same level as, as the All Blacks have, but they still are expected to perform and to win. And so, how do you change? I guess years of underperformance and by creating that belonging and that culture, like how important is culture in a team environment? You can have the best players in the world, but if they're not buying in, then you yeah, you're not going to perform. And even that, um, I don't know if you've seen it, that Beckham documentary. No, not yet. So the, when he first got to Real Madrid, you know, this team's stacked with you know stars. And while they're all good mates, they on the field they play like individuals. And how do you change that mindset when you've got all these incredible players to actually work together as a team and, and get the results that you desire? Yeah. And it's that culture piece, right? Like culture is so important. And you hear it throughout a lot of these chats, how important culture is to, to building a successful side. Yeah. And as you talk about that, like I think someone who would be awesome to have on would be like Steve Kerr. Like it would be like how do you get – You've got like some of the best basketball players in your team, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. You had Kevin Durant there, and you had Draymond Green. Like all of them, like shooters. How do you get enough touches for each and every one of them to, to get their their stats and stuff like that? Considering their contracts obligations are probably like layered in with like how many points you get and whether or not you make an All Star or whatever. So you, how do you share that? playing time and those points how do you keep them so focused into the common goal of winning an NBA title 
or is or whether or not that is the common goal to win an NBA title. Everybody wants to win a ring. That should be like that's why you're playing, right? Yeah, correct. But what is what like it'd be interesting to know from Steve's point of view, like what is his bigger picture for for the team? Like what is the bigger purpose? Like if it is to win a title, well shit, you've done that. Because mm. I think that's probably what Ray's like Ray's has done seven, right? In a row, and you're just like, how do you keep getting the boys up each year to go to not be complacent, to not think that like it's just going to come because mm. it isn't? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the last couple of years, especially, right? They've got to work really hard, and, and that will be a big part of the next couple of years with them with this rebuild. Yeah, you're losing really, really key players that have probably helped lead and drive it. So, who's stepping up now to, to do the same? Yeah, who would be, um, Next year, who would be like some guests that you think we should get on? Realistic or unrealistic? <laughs> like, to be fair, like I, there's some people like there's some people on this list who I thought was going to be unrealistic to get on, like Gary Gary Klein, who's like the godfather of decision making. Like I would never in my wildest dreams think that he would have agreed to jump on our podcast. Same as. Like Owen and James Nottingham, and even like Preston and stuff like that. I never thought that they would, or even JT Holmes. Like I literally read the book and flipped him a DM on Instagram and was like, "Hey, would you be keen?" And he was just like, "Oh yeah, I'll jump on it." Like, I don't think it is unrealistic. It's just whether or not they have. Well, that's the thing. Like, it's amazing the connected world we live in, right? As you can just be like, "Oh, it'd be awesome to talk to that person," and yeah, and understand a little bit more about what makes them tick and, and how they develop. Like, I think one for me that'd be quite fascinating would be around like a caddy, golf caddy, whether oh, yeah. it's a Steve Williams or uh, like someone in that space. Their role is so unique, right? Like there's no role in the world like it where they're a, a global superstar, right-hand man, but also a coach or um, decision maker out in the, in the field and, they will help them make the decision, but ultimately they don't have any impact on the final result. Like the golf can chunk a shot or, or slice it or do all sorts. They could have given them the right information, but it's then how they go and, and make the right decision following that. And someone like a Steve Williams, for example, would be you've worked with you know the greatest in the world. You've worked with people like Adam Scott, who's also an incredible golfer, but they must be so different from each other. Yeah. Like you're adapting your communication style or your decision-making process to fit the person you're working for. That's that's a cool point because like a Tiger and an Adam Scott are probably two completely different people, but also they probably swing the, the golf club completely differently as well. So where Tiger's probably like potentially could be great with a three iron, mm. Scott's probably like, no, nah, my club of choice is five. Yeah, I know nothing about golf, by the way. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know enough. But I know that it's always something I'll be like, "Oh, that'd be cool to do," and then you yeah. like dive into it. It's like, "Oh, there's so much more that goes into it." And I think that makes stuff like um, the recent Ryder Cup really interesting. You've got a guy like Joe LaCava, who's caddy for Tiger, and he's caddy for now he's Patrick Cantlay's caddy. Say caddy about six times. Yeah, and his personality is obviously a big personality. Like he got in the face of Rory and, and came under a bit of controversy. But what like what made him go to that point? Obviously, you never dive into what made you 
go yeah, to the yeah, red yeah. line, but yeah. it's so out of the ordinary for his role that it stood out. Yeah. And it'd be fascinating to dive into like how they manage those situations because you can get frustrated with your player, but ultimately they're your boss. So how do you manage that conversation to keep in the in the green and, and not go into that red line kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a fair point because like even like the whole like Tiger Woods, like I don't know enough about the story, but like Steve Williams and Tiger Woods, like how their partnership broke, like on top of the world and then all of a sudden not anymore, like not together and from like potentially don't like each other now and you're just like, shit, what happened? Mm. How did that dynamic break? What like what was the, what was the reason? Was it nobody will obviously know the true story. Everybody will they'll bring out have the their bio, reasons, they'll yeah. have their biographies that say one thing and another, but nobody really will know. And maybe they don't really know what happened, what broke down the relationship. But to be like, well, I'm your coach, but then the greatest person in the world going golf in the world at the time going, look, I probably actually don't need you. And what do I need? And that's and that's probably that's a cool question for coaches. Really, is around what type of coach does each player need? Because I don't think nowadays coaching isn't so much like that dictator type coach, where it was like thirty odd, forty odd years ago when everybody came out of the military. And well, you look at like a Grizz, right? Grizz is known as a hard nosed kind of hardliner type yeah. thing. Would that kind of coach work nowadays? Probably, probably not. No, but like I also think, like even like that conversation with Robbie, like highlighted and Smithy, like there's that story around how they played the was it Canterbury played the New Zealand Maori right, and then all of a sudden New Zealand Maori wiped the floor with them, and then Robbie was like, "Grizz, we need to change our defense up," and Grizz was like, "No, nah, we don't," and he's just like. We do, we want to defend like that. And Grizz was like, well, sweet, well, you guys do it, but don't fuck it up. Like, he actually gave him some autonomy around. And back back then, that's probably actually new age coaching mm. where, we okay, I'll give a little bit of power to you, where, yeah, I don't know, some days I feel like coaches still, a lot of coaches still quite reluctant to give that away, whether or not that's their, if they're in a big role, an exec role or a managerial role within their work, and they're just like, they're just like, oh, I know how to manage, so I'm just going to do that. This is how I do it at work, so this is how I do it on sports field. But it's like, maybe that doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. Eh? Like those kind of stories, and same with Steve Hansen, right? As you go in with one type of um, thought on what they're going to be like, and then yeah. actually, it's always. And most of the time, completely different to what you think. And when you dive into it, it's yeah, yeah, great to kind of see that person behind the, the well, stories. That, well, that was the there was the conversation, like because Steve was someone that was like, "Can we get him on?" A because he's like a former Canterbury coach, and obviously he like most of the Canterbury coaches that have left here have gone on and done great things. But it was Angus. Um, Gardner's chat around like what have you learned from like who's been your greatest mentor and he's just like well it's real hard to talk around who my favourite coach is because I've had so many great coach and he's right he's had like Wayne Smith and Steve Hansen Robbie Teams and you're just like geez these guys are probably going to go down like some of them already are Hall of Fame coaches right mm-hmm. and then when he was like oh 
Steve Hansen actually taught me about advocating for like being player advocator and you're just like actually that's not probably what I would have seen Steve's superpower to be but it's funny how that's Hmm. never been coached by him or know him but that's what like their players see him and it's just like well that got me real that's what got me real curious going shit I need to try and get him yeah on I'm still still keen to get his daughter on she's been she's an enigma to try and get on here just fleeting but um so a golf caddy, we went around in circles there, but a yeah. golf caddy, who would who else would be another cool guest? Oh, this would be quite an interesting one. So he talked about um, Nick Wilson and the power of speech. Yeah. And one coach who's probably well known for his use of um, harsh language would be Craig Bellamy. Oh, yeah. But has obviously built an environment that has got continuous success. Um, you know, he's well known for his sprays. His sprays, but it'd be fascinating to dive into when like how pointed he is with those sprays as well like how he gets the results out of you know the big name players yeah. a long time there he had you know four of the best league players in the world so yeah and obviously they've used them in the past for different themings for teams in this building and yeah and that sort of thing like they're obviously a a, a stand-up and role model environment and he's such a yeah strong personality. It'd be fascinating to dive into him a little bit more. Yeah, that, that's a good shout actually, because it'd be interesting to know whether or not like that's heat of the moment. Like he's obviously like you can see he's obviously a competitor, right? But then I wonder if that's actually the same environment in like when they're in camp. Like mm. is he like that in the meetings? Is he like that on the training fields? And I can imagine there's probably a little bit. There probably is a little bit of that there. But yeah, is it is it just like he's just so competitive that if they get that wrong, because he's just like he's seen a missed opportunity or he's seen something and he's just like, you know, he's just blowing up tax because he's so invested and locked in. Yeah, that would be real. And he obviously is like he's obviously got a level of um what's the right word? Like he's obviously rubbed off on his players, right? Like the, the success is there, but even now when some of them are going into coaching, like that Queensland yeah. team's completely changed under Billy Slater. And how much of that is off the back of what he learned yeah. as a player in, a, in an environment that did have all that success. Yeah, that's a good point around like that, almost like that coaching tree. And because you kind of look at it here, you could go back further, like we talked around Grizz, and then how many of those players from that, from that like Ramfieldy Shield era, have gone on to do great stuff? And you've so you've got like Wayne Smith and Robbie Deans that were in there, and you've got like Steve that was kind of like on the probably just on the back end of of that. But then you look at the Crusaders and Crusaders start up, and then with what Wayne and Robbie and and um, Steve did. Like Razors came out of there, Aaron Majors come out of there, um, Joe Maddox come out of there, Todd Blackhead has come out of there. Like we could literally go on and list like the first ever Crusaders team. And if they haven't all, if they aren't all coaching now, they've all been a coach or probably currently holding some sort of like sports administration role mm. in somewhere in the world. And it's just like, that's incredible to just look at and go, holy heck. I think the only one's probably like Marshy and Mertz who are TV presenters, but yeah. Like, Still in sports though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Their, their role is not as much a coach, but uh, I guess a critic. And yeah. 
that's the similar role, right? You're watching the game and, and um, with that eye on it to to find out why you know that kick was missed or that decision was made and that similar thinking. Yeah, and I'm sure they probably go in and do um, clinics or they go mm. in and do like skill sessions. Like Mets, is, I'm pretty sure used to do some kicking stuff for the Waratahs and and whatnot. But that's like that's fascinating to know that trick because yeah, like you said with Belly, like. Cam Smith's probably, like I know that he's doing some team stuff, but potentially once he's actually, or oh, some TV stuff, but I'm, I'm sure he's probably going to pick up whistle at some stage. Mm-hmm. Like Billy State is doing epic stuff with the whistle, and so you probably like Cooper Crock, once he's probably done with the TV life, he's probably going to jump into coaching at some stage, if he's not already coaching the Roosters somewhere yeah. and behind the scenes. So that would be cool. Who would be a third one? Uh, I was thinking like a cross-code type person so someone like a David Kidwell would be quite cool oh yeah um, he's a local Canterbury guy yeah he's had the uh, experience obviously leading a program in, in rugby league and now um, it's getting success in, in a rugby union environment yeah. and yes the sports have massive similarities right like the kind of end goal's the same to get over the chalk but how does he utilise his skills that he learnt in a, in a different environment into a rugby sense yeah yeah, and how much did he learn, like, with coaching just being, co- like, to him is coaching just coaching and doesn't, like, could he go and coach Tabba Tennis or could he go mm. and coach water polo or something like that? Like, would he feel comfortable in those different environments? That'd be a really cool conversation. And even probably around, like, you know, that Kiwis, that time when he was in the Kiwis, probably had one of the most talented, potentially one of the most talented Kiwi sides possible and then just, like, how did you deal with like like going coming up against adversity and why did you want to step back into that international arena doing the Argentinian rugby team who, you know, now they've found some consistency in their form, like had been kind of a up and down, real peaks and troughs type. type yeah, it's the same with Andy Farrell, right? He's a leaguey. Yeah. So how's he utilised his league background to to get the best out of Ireland and, and while the result didn't go their way on the weekend, but they have obviously turned a corner in their performance and under his tutelage. So yeah. how does the, what you take out of your chosen sport then go into a different arena? Yeah. Yeah. Crosscode one would be, would be epic to talk to. Um, and a fourth one? Well, I was trying to think, I saw you had four down there. I was trying to think of a fourth. Um, like the, obviously, being a referee, it's always fascinating to hear the thoughts of uh, higher-level referees. Yeah. Um, you know, Ben O'Keefe's the one who's done a lot of podcasts, and Paul Williams like, did one with Jimmy Marshall here, and hearing what those guys have to think about the kind of state of play and, and what they go out and do is always real fascinating. Um, so it'd be quite interesting to hear it in a different code as well. Like, yeah. don't know who you can dive into and grab, but Certainly, refereeing is the same or similar in most sports. I'd be actually one would be actually a cricket umpire. Oh yeah, would be real fascinating because obviously you're going to be switched on for eight hours of the day in, in certain disciplines. So how do you make sure that you're you stay switched on to make the right call at the crucial moment? Yeah, yeah, eight hours of like intense concentration. Oh, I'm I'm buggered after 80 minutes of rugby, let alone eight hours standing in the sun and 
some of the environments they're in, those conditions are harsh. Yeah. And then you're expected to make a call that you only see a split second, you know, the ball hits a pad and it's like, well, where was it going to go? And you've got to almost, yeah. Yeah. Be fascinating to find out like what goes into making those decisions. Yeah, becoming a world-class cricket umpire mm. to be able to perform. Yeah, that would be an interesting conversation. Because I guess that's the route, like a lot of that stuff, even thinking off the back, like are they going to be talking a lot around like staying in the moment, but like mindfulness, all that type of training to be just like, I don't know, when they're swapping ends or or whatever. I don't know a lot about cricket. It's not one of my favourite sports, but there's, there probably is moments where they're like, okay, I need to try and turn off here because these next seven to 12 balls I need to be on. Yeah, like... It'd be such a it's such a unique environment. There's very few sports in the world that require one person to make a decision yeah. in a split second over a long period of time like that. So it'd be fascinating to know what goes into yeah, staying in the moment, especially staying in the moment in environments like in India or a, you know, an Ashes test or yeah. something where there's a lot on the line. You think about a boxing day test at the MCG, it's 40 degrees probably around the pitch. So you've got to stay hydrated and yeah. in the moment and all those things well in a really intense environment yeah because there's a lot also going on like in your peripherals not only is the bull flying at like over 100 kilometers an hour like you have to see whether or not their foot's over the line you then have to see whether or not like it's a throw or if it's like a legit bull whether or not it's going over the hitting the like if it's bouncing in somebody's head or if it's like going to be a no ball or if it's hitting mm. the pads, is it LBW? Like how do you look at everything that's happening in like literally split seconds? Like, And obviously you've got another umpire that's kind of backing you up, but their view is completely different to what, yeah. what your view is. So how you're yeah, offloading some of that cognitive load and all that type of stuff. Yeah, that'd be a fascinating problem. And like in, in umpiring and rugby refereeing you work as a team right so there's still the team aspect to yeah. what you're doing and understanding how everyone operates so everyone's different so how do you get the best out of each other so that when you do your know, rugby's 80 minutes so it's test matches five days how do you make sure that you get the best results amongst your peers during that time yeah yeah that'd, that'd, that'd be super that's the mine's going wild now that's a lot to that's probably that's a lot to kind of think about over the off season. Um, probably one question that popped up while we were talking, and like, how have you like how have you felt these podcasts have gone from like where we talked about it, well over a year ago, off like off the back of like a kind of a flippant comment of like trying to get, well, should we try and do this podcast and let's try and do seventy episodes, and then we ended up doing twenty something, and then now we've done fifty. Like, where do you think, where did you think that they were going to get to? And how pleased are you with, <laughs> <laughs> with the hard work? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, well, I did never expected you to get, like, as you say, like some of these uh, higher profile guests. You look at, like, the ones that have a, a massive international base and also are uh, also unique. Like there's a whole lot of unique conversations you had in here, and you mentioned, um, you know, the mathematician and Owen Eastwood and and JT Holmes, like they're guys that are big in their fields, 
but having that connection piece to rugby and understanding how it can help us as coaches or even, you know, I don't coach rugby, but obviously referee and yeah, a lot of the decision-making stuff that you talk about, like with Gary Klein and, and the like, fits in really nicely with what I do. And I think the connecting, the thing I've been most impressed with is that connecting back to, to the rugby side and understanding how these different kind of areas of the game can be influenced and you know how you can be influenced to make it better too yeah yeah that, that has been like even someone like Damien Hughes like got his own podcast like written number one best-selling books and stuff like that like his conversation and probably I don't think many I can't remember if I talked about it or not but even like we before I think we'd press record, but before we actually properly started the podcast, we had like a good like 10 minute talk around like our children beforehand. Like he was talking about his son and I was talking about my son and like it was like those conversations afterwards or pre-recording have been like, sometimes you kind of feel like that stuff should be like in on the and <laughs> on the podcast as well. Yeah, but it adds to the when you do end up recording, right? That um personality side, like your connection. Yeah. You've already you know way more about it now than you did when you flipped in the message on LinkedIn sort of thing, right? Yeah. I think even like the ones that you talk to like Crofty and and Laurie McDaniel and, and kind of Canterbury specific people was really cool too. Like hearing more about what they do in their environments. And how that relates is to a wider Canterbury audience. You know, the majority of our listeners are probably Canterbury based. I mean, I can yeah. find out in our analytics, but you know, we we set out to help our coaches and to get in front of more coaches than probably what you can do on a on a weekly basis, right? And through these chats, you've been able to get in front of way more people and also open a lot of eyes. I'd imagine to what goes on in in the world of coaching, but also the world of Mass and yeah. you know skydiving and all sorts. That's been it's funny that you bring that up, like because our target market is Canterbury rugby, right? Like our Canterbury rugby community, and even like just our Canterbury rugby sport, our Canterbury sport community is probably our target. But get, it's been surreal getting feedback from like people from like other countries or other provincial unions and being like your like this podcast is was awesome for these reasons or I like thank you so much like that wasn't like getting that feedback or getting that that acknowledgement wasn't what we set out to do that's right yeah but what it said what we did set out to do is we need to try and get how do we get in front of and what we average what a hundred and something odd yeah 150 a week when it when the episode comes out, yeah, I don't get in front of even with the fact that we're probably the, one of the biggest staffed provincial unions. We wouldn't get in front of that many coaches a week, and it's and it's that's the humbling part. But the the part that I love the most is that we're helping or in some small way a hundred old coaches each week, and whether or not it's the same coaches or a new someone new to the podcast, um, that's the part because I. That's what we set out. That was kind of our challenge. Like, how do we get in front of these people if we can't get in front of them? Yeah, and obviously, like the ones the chat taking and chats with Steve Hansen and Owen Eastwood were the two highest listened. But I think the fifth highest one was your chat with Crofty. Yeah. And so it's like 
that's to a global audience or to a wider audience that probably doesn't mean a lot to people but obviously something made people click on it and then need to listen to it or listen to it again and, and got yeah. a lot out of it and I think that's really cool that you know it's great getting big big name people but seeing those conversations with you know giving a voice to more people is, yeah. is just as important right well that's cool that Crofty's story was real cool I real like know him well from coaching with him at Sydney and and all that type of stuff but like hearing like his chat of like when he had to go down to Mexico for a rugby game and then he ended up turning the game into a coaching session because it went like berserk like you tell me how many other coaches would do that like I don't think many other and Mm. the fact that he like there was a and even he acknowledged it at the end of it he's like I forgot all about that story until we sat down and and like that's the cool stuff around like what do we talk about what do we bring up and it's just like well just we just talk about whatever where the conversation goes I'll try and flow it back into into something that makes sense into rugby point of view but like wanting wanting our guests to feel comfortable just to share their knowledge and share their experiences because I think the more that's probably what I learned from Gary and Preston stuff the more shared experiences that we have the better understanding we have of like situations if we face another situation Mm. and that's why again I go back to like the breadth of um guests that we have on it's just been epic because they're just like oh this and this and this and this and this and this it's not just a rugby noise podcast that is rugby 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 like break it up a little bit yeah well it's the wider context of those conversations right like ultimately you want to improve people's knowledge base and, and understanding of certain topics and by having people that aren't ones that they traditionally uh, engage with makes a massive difference. Yeah. I know that's awesome. Well, we'll jump into the quick fire segment. Um, and so, mate, you've listened to all these questions. <laughs> so you should have some pretty, you should hopefully have some pretty queued up um, answers. So you're inviting three people to dinner. Who are they and what are you cooking? Uh, so I'll go with the cooking question first, get that one out of the way. I'm, um, I like to think I'm an accomplished cook. Uh, the ones who are with me probably say that I'm, I'm not, um, but probably a barbecue, um, you know, nice sun, uh, sunny day, you know, out on a deck somewhere, you, you know, can't go wrong. Yeah. What's the protein you're putting on the barbecue? I can't let you away with just the barbecue, mate. Um, well, I think you'd go cube roll, you know, a bit of, bit of steak. Um and you know, can't go wrong with some good saucies. Nice. And who's coming? Uh so I'd invite Tiger Woods, who yep. talked about the, the golf side, and I'm fascinated by his story. Um, you know, such a an enigma in terms of the public eye. Um, and finding out a little bit more about what makes him tick would be quite fascinating. Um Another person, I'm, I did history, so my degree was history and communications. Um, so I'd be fascinated to talk to Sir Winston Churchill. Oh, yeah. Um, mainly because, again, he's such a, a bold and brash character, but his life experiences, like he lived through some pretty insane times, you know, right from when he was in the army and the Boer War through yeah. to, you know, Gallipoli and, and that sort of thing to write through to the Second World War and then even leading the country in, in a post-Second World War environment. Like he would have led a very interesting life and it'd be fascinating to, to talk to him in, in more depth. Yeah. 
Um, and then my third, that I'd kind of come in with those two. And then my third, I reckon Nelson Mandela again, similar thing. He's lived through a very fascinating time. And, and I think the, for him, like the forgiveness that he, you know, offered up to a large part of that nation is pretty incredible just after the experiences that he'd been through and the unifying factor that he was able to, yeah. to draw together. And obviously there's a, a little rugby piece in there with the 95 World Cup, but well, there's that movie Invictus, right? That mm. kind of highlighted to him what the Springboks could mean to the country. Yeah, so it'd be fascinating to talk to him about his life experiences and obviously a couple of them you'd have to bring back from the dead. But <laughs> yeah, you know, it'd be a fascinating conversation with those three. They've all led very different lives. Um, you know, one's trained his whole life to be good at golf. One's lived in a pretty high level position for you know ninety percent of his life, and the other had to make do with what he was given to begin with, but turned it into you know pretty magical outcome. Yeah, so yeah, it'd be a fascinating, fascinating dinner. I yeah. don't know if I'd be saying a lot, <laughs> a lot of listening, just asking lots of questions. No, that's cool. What's um, and it doesn't. I know that you've you've said that you've done, gone through a lot of sports, so I'll let you off the hook here that it doesn't have to be rugby. But what is one of your favourite sporting memories, either being a part of it on the middle of the pitch or being a spectator? Um, well, it's actually, it's probably not where you think this might go, but I'm a massive um, Leeds United fan. Oh, yeah. Um, tragic Leeds United fan. And when I lived in the UK in, in 2016, I had... Um, I was really lucky to be able to get tickets to be in the away end for a game at Brighton. Yeah. And obviously the away end in English sports is quite a a big cultural thing, right? Like you're a thousand, two thousand people in a stadium full of thirty-five thousand of the home fan, and you've got a you're a us against them mentality, and it's very um you know primal. Yeah. But to be in that environment where you're also in a massive group of similar minded people and, and to have a common goal, which was to see our team win, and they didn't win that day, but you know watching it all my life and then being a part of it was really cool and really special. Like, you know, we didn't win and there weren't a lot of positive memories out of the game in terms of the actual on-field stuff, but being a part of the off-field environment and and the atmosphere was incredible. Yeah. I never went to, um, when I was over there, I never went to an English football game, but I went to a couple of Scottish games. I went to two Hibernian games and, like, it is just next level just even in the Scottish leagues next level the fact that you can't buy alcohol like I was just like we couldn't get beers and they're like no because when we they have beers there tends to be fights so they've stopped drinking it in all stadiums but like just nobody's sitting in their seats everybody's standing up on their seats everybody's singing everybody's jumping around and you you go could you do that at like the stadiums here and no anybody stands up somebody behind is like sit down and you're just like it's such a day. I think that's probably what made it so special is you, you know, we're watching uh, on the complete other side of the world and you see these crowds that chant and yeah. and get so invested and involved in the game and then to be in that environment, but in an environment where you are 2,000 against 35,000, yeah, it was very cool to be in amongst that, especially when you kind of watched it all your life. That also, that, it happens in rugby over there as well. Like it, I went to like Quinns versus uh, Worcester, Saracens versus... I think it was Saints, and it was like they're singing, they're jumping around, like nobody's really sitting in these seats. Like at 
at Saracens, they play in the middle of an athletic track, and you so you don't even have to sit in your seats. You can go walk down on the track side and just stand like literally on the field, and you're just like, this is you don't get that experience. But all the fans are singing. The Fez group comes in with Saracens, and they'll sing Happy Birthday to like a club member that's it's their birthday today, and they'll go into mm. the middle of the field and sing Happy Birthday. And you're like, holy, the fan engagement out there is like through the roof. Anyway, we digress. Uh, who's um, this? This could still work. Who's a coach that's had a positive impact on you? Oh, it'd probably there's uh, like everyone who's answered this question. There's you know several that have had a, a positive impact on me. Like I've had been really lucky to have really good tools and coaches through the refereeing space, um, and also in you know my other sports, water polo, football, and, and cricket. I think. Um, you know, my recent coach for refereeing, Paul Ashdown, has been really positive. Um, we've got a really good relationship and obviously had some good results to end up getting a first-class game. Um, you know, someone like him who's invested a lot of time in me and I appreciate, you know, he's a volunteer and, and all that stuff um, is pretty amazing. Like, he drove down to my game in North Otago for the day and, and came and watched. And I think for him it was as much around coming to be a part of it as as it was to actually coach, but having him there and in that familiar face in an unfamiliar environment was really special. Yeah. Um, so yeah, probably he would be in that space. And then Brent Murray obviously got me into refereeing and has been a, a helpful ear um, <laughs> from time to time when I've been trying to get through it all and understand, you know, how things operate or what I should be doing better. Or, you know, like there's yeah, certainly lots of people that you know, like everyone said, there's tons of people that put a lot of time and effort into you and you're really grateful, especially in refereeing. Obviously, most coaches are volunteers too, but the refereeing side is, is it's a very different um, different person who volunteers their time to coach referees. Yeah, correct. I know that's awesome. Um, what is one bit of advice you'd give a young Josh starting out on his refereeing journey? Um, oh, probably just that whole commit to it, right? Like, um, you know, we are volunteering and you're giving up a lot of hours, but all of those hours will have a benefit to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, as I said, like I learned a lot in you know my 12 years referring. I say learned, have learned a lot um in my 12 years referring and, and just frying myself into it. Like I've done tons of referring, especially when I came down to Canterbury and was at university, you've got a lot more spare time and, and frying yourself into every opportunity is certainly the way to go. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, what would be your go-to activity? If you're running a, a refereeing clinic, what would be your, because I know that you guys do a lot of upskimming. I've been a part of it um, once. What would be your go-to activity to, I guess, get the get the group kind of fizzed up for the for the night? Well, I think you just play a game of touch. You know, all the referees have a, a dream of being a better player at heart. Yeah. Um, you know, there's various reasons why someone becomes a referee, but a number were former players. So getting that competitive spirit going and, you know, everyone loves just throwing a ball around regardless of the output. So, yeah, yeah I reckon just get stuck in. Nice. And you can probably, you can answer this however you want to answer it because I know that we we ask our coaches what does it mean to be a coach to them. But what does being a referee mean to you or what does being a communications exec means to you? 
Oh, it's probably easier to speak to the referee part. Like um, that's me as a volunteer and and give up a lot of time to do it. Um, it is funny. Like I've been very privileged in my role at Canterbury Rugby to then meet lots of people. So now when I do go to a rugby ground, I'm Josh the referee, but I'm also Josh from Canterbury Rugby and have those relationships with people already. Yeah. Um, and as a result, I've got a lot of benefit out of volunteering in the last couple of years where. I've developed these relationships. I think I've been in Canterbury seven years now. So develop these relationships over seven years to now feel like you're a part and, and having a really positive impact on the rugby community. And, and yes, you, you have that regardless of how long you've been referring, like giving up your time to help people play the, the game you love and they love is, is pretty special. But now being able to, to kind of have that influence my work career too has been really cool. Like, yeah. You know, I find it a lot easier now when I ring people and they know who I am and they see me out there doing it and, and having that opportunity to kind of mould my two passions. Like I love rugby and, and love refereeing, but also really enjoy what I do for a job. So being able to mould those two together is pretty special. Well, it's 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 cool that you say that or hear you say that because like the stuff that you do around how Lyndon sets up all the premier refs to go out and be attached to a premier club and you're affiliated, essentially affiliated with high school old boys, like no bigger compliment to someone who isn't completely a part of it, where they make you completely a part of it and then they invite you to like Mad Monday or Silly Sunday or something like that, right? Like that is, that shows, and we go back to kind of that old stuff, that shows that you you were a part of their team and you were a part of their, essentially helping them get to play on Rugby Park at the end of the season through filling your boots and, and jumping in and stuff like that. So um which is just real which is real cool to see from a coaching point of view that a club is actually utilizing a, a resource like their referees. But also from a personal point it must be pretty pretty cool to be like, come on mate, you, you're on the piss with us. <laughs> yeah, it was cool to have that because you know we talked a little bit around refereeing being a team environment too. Like we're we're really privileged at premier level and higher to have ARs and, and sub controllers and the like that are there to help you. Um, but 90% of the time you are on your own a little yeah. bit. Like, and then having a really good refereeing coach helps in that space. But to be able to also have that team environment and know that you're adding to a team and uh, to the success of a team is really special. And, you know, someone like a Joff Moore, who's the coach of old boys, made a really concerted effort to make sure that I was a part of that and, and you know, it meant a lot to to me to have that um connection piece yeah then. No, that's that's cool and um well mate that's i guess that's us that's our 50 episodes done and dusted and i think it's cool to do like we talked around different ways of like guess who we could bring in for the 50 and like the more i thought about it the more it meant like it had to be it had to be you like it had for our 50 episodes to have like essentially someone who from the genesis of it like to do it so i just want to say like on behalf of myself and probably and the coaches listening in like thank you so much for like making my voice sound a lot better than what it is and getting the message out from our amazing guests out to our coaches like it is i know at times probably feels a little bit thankless but like 
I wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for you because I have no idea how to do it. Um, and the fact that you've decided that like you'd it's something that you'd enjoy to take on and and see it having benefit to our wider community is is awesome. So hey, thanks for everything that you do. Thank you, Ricky. I've really enjoyed it. As I said, it's been fascinating to hear from so many different people and and ones that I wouldn't traditionally engage with. So to have the opportunity to to be at the coalface with you and and find out a little bit more of what goes into it all has has been pretty cool. Awesome. Well, um, that's us for this season. Uh, We'll be back next season um, for um, your season season three or season 2k24 however we what however we call it so um to all the coaches out there that have been listening in um thank you so much for for actually listening to some of our dribble at times but um yeah we really do appreciate it we really do hope that we are actually having an impact to the coaches that are listening in and a massive thank you to all our 50 guests i know that we've had a couple of double ups with jimmy sinclair and and BB jumping on, but um, yeah, I really do appreciate all our guests that have come on. And we mentioned a few of them, um, but yeah, every single one of them have been absolutely epic. And I've know that I've taken a lot away personally from every single conversation that we've had um, with them. So I really want to thank our guests that have jumped on and you so enjoy the off season enjoy the summer if it is summer wherever you're listening to this um if it's not summer and you're about to climb into your season have a great season and yeah we'll keep your eyes peeled as there may be a couple of um bonus episodes getting chucked out over the over the Chrissy break so enjoy that